Well, hello, Real Life Class and anybody else that may be out there listening to the, the teaching on the book of Philippians as we're studying how to further the gospel, how Paul has written uh, this letter to the church at Philippi. In, in, um, so it's been a good study so far. So thank you for being here and thank you for being uh, part of HBF and uh, we really appreciate that and part of the Real Life Class as well. Uh, we do have some announcements about a few things that I'll be going over here in just a, just a moment. But I wanted to wait until we're fully at 6 o'clock so that everybody that wants to join us can join us. I, I found that going live a few minutes early gives Julie a chance to track down the correct uh, URL for the video so that she can text that out to everybody so that at least everybody can find that. If, and we also send it out to other um, uh, people that we know, family members, guests, friends, that we just want to encourage them to join us so we, she gets all of that done and, and then, uh, then we're ready to start at 6 o'clock. And, uh, and so it's, it's, been really, it's been really interesting how we're doing this. Um, we came real close this morning to coming to the morning service, but it was just a few things that uh, just weren't quite right and as we were thinking about it, we didn't have the peace that we really were thinking that we had. Um, but it did look like there was a pretty good turnout of people at church this morning. I would say close to 100, uh, which is a good number. And, of course, uh, all the way the chairs were set up, there was, for people who are concerned, um, there was plenty of space between each family group. So if that family group might be one or two people, that family group might be five people. But there was enough space between the chairs, the way that Jim and others had positioned all the chairs, to have the social distancing that is necessary to make people comfortable. And then people were wearing masks that wanted to wear a mask, and some people didn't wear a mask that didn't want to wear a mask. Um, and um, but it overall went very well. The uh, praise was was excellent. The the preaching was excellent, and the Lord's Supper was excellent. And if you didn't get a chance to participate in the Lord's Supper, I'm sorry. Uh, we did have these little cups that had a wafer, uh, the unleavened bread, and um, and then the uh, the grape juice in there as well. And um, so that was that made it really convenient. A little awkward, you know, you're used to doing things a certain way, but uh, it did work well uh, for uh, for this uh, this time anyway. And it was good to be able to worship together, even though um, we felt a little uh, separated because we opted at the last minute not to go to church, which, you know, I'm wrestling with my my heart the whole time. Should we have gone? Shouldn't we have gone? Should we have gone? Shouldn't we have gone? Um, but that's okay. I know other people wrestle with that same question, and uh, it's hard for some people to, to know what to do. Um but that's okay. We'll we'll eventually be back together as a class. And in fact, that's one of the announcements I want to make. But before we do that, um, just want to make a couple of uh, announcements. So first off, you've got your handout, and I did uh, you know the handout for the for the study. Uh, I did. I hope I did. I don't remember if I emailed that. I don't think I emailed that to everybody. It's well now. It's in the it's in the files folder, but it's on my computer. I could 
Let me just do it real quick. Huh? I'm going to email you all the, the handouts, at least people in the real life class, because that's all I have access to. I apologize. I, I can't remember if I sent it or not, but I'm going to send it again in case I didn't. Um, so bear with me for just a moment. I'll take a second. This is what happens when you have a hole in your head. Things fall out and you can't remember what you did. The sanctification of the believer. Okay, so that's a PDF file. So I sent it. In any case, it's got... Let me get back over to the where I need to be. And, uh, you know, there's places in there for your, for what we're going to talk about, you know, at least some sort of an outline. There's a couple of announcements I want to mention. Uh, first off, um, Bob Hall's cleaning team is June, June 21st. And uh, and then uh, um, I don't know if either you or Lance have had a chance to talk to Jim Boyette about what his expectations are for us at this point in time with everything going on, but Lance Yoder's team is July 25th. There is uh, two um, ministries, uh, which is in the bulletin. There's a ladies' um, ministry and a men's ministry. So the ladies' invest study is June 1st at 7 o'clock. And the men's Bible breakfast, Bibles and breakfast is June 20th. And breakfast is always good. Of course, hearing from the Word of God is good too. So those things are coming up. Um, one thing I would like to, I, I'm not exactly clear. I know that the Arnies are discipling a couple, uh, but I don't know who else is discipling. So if you're discipling somebody, if you could please send me an email with who you're discipling, how often are you meeting, when's the last time you met, what lesson are you on? And just kind of give me a just an over general a generally overview of how things are going with that. Um, next Saturday on the June June sixth, we're going to do a taking it to the streets. We're going to do door hangers uh, around the uh, city park in that area there uh, to invite people to come out to the church or to the church in the park. And uh, so, it, for the most part, things are going to be the same. There will be a big tent. We haven't had a tent the last couple of years because of the expense, but we have got a tent that we have free access to, and we're going to use that tent. Um, so maybe everybody, instead of being up in the shade trees, will be down under the tents because the tent will block some of the audio. It's just the way it works. Um, E-Wing uh, was opening on the 14th, uh, June 14th was this Sunday, but that's changed now. Um, in fact... We are not going to have um, June 14th as the first altogether Sunday yet. Um, there's some things that are, have changed. Nothing bad, just the the, dictation, the dictates of the governor haven't changed. And so Pastor Brian has felt that we should wait until June 21st to kick, kick things off again. So... Um, Kingdom Seekers promotion will happen on the 21st, and um, everything that was supposed to happen on the 14th will happen on the 21st now, the way, it's, the way it seems. What that means for the real-life class is that on the 21st of June, we will be back in the real-life classroom, uh, fully present, and um, I don't know exactly how all that's going to work. 
because there's still some testing that we, you know, checking people's temperature and things like that. And I don't know how that's going to happen for people out in the out in the modulars, but we'll have a plan of action for you by the time we get to that. That's three weeks away. So, um, so we got that, and then VBS planning meeting on July, June 24th. 14th. I messed up the dates on that. June 14th, but I don't know if that's going to happen now. So. Bear with me on that. We'll wait and see what what uh, Chris and Laura and Cohen have to say uh, because their, the schedule's changed, so their schedule may change. One last thing that probably, hopefully, will still happen would be June 28th, which is Lauren Cohen's graduation from Heartland Bible Institute. And I really want to encourage you to please be there to celebrate uh, all the work that she has done um, to invest in her growth and uh, becoming a very mature woman uh, who is uh, going to be an influence in our church for a long time. And uh, so um, I've been reading her dissertation, which is on how to minister to single uh, women. It's excellent dissertation. Her plan is excellent. I'm really encouraged by it. And um, so the 28th of, of June, which is a Sunday night, 6 o'clock, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna celebrate her graduation. I think that's everything um, bulletin-wise and I wanted to mention. If you turn over to Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 15. We'll read down through the end. Uh, we do have Annabeth uh, Bonison. Please be in prayer for that, for her. Huh? Biopsy. For the biopsy. We're looking for the results. Well, the test is on June 3rd, but the results on June 10th, if I remember correctly. And uh, um, actually, I think I saw an email shortly ago from from Jeremy about his grandmother, I believe. So let me I have my computer in front of me and look at that real quick. Um his ninety three year old grandmother. Um she was tested positive for COVID in the nursing home she's living in in Iowa. We definitely need to make sure we pray for her. She's ninety three years old in nursing home. And she's been tested positive for the virus. Um, so those two, those two prayer needs are important. We'll lift those up to to the, to the Lord. If anybody else has anything, please text it to Julie. Um, and I know there's some people that have some, some just some health issues. Uh, Gwen Arney, pray pray for Gwen uh, with the things that he's uh, been dealing with the last couple of weeks, testing on. Keeping track of the progress on his on his cancer, um, the Steele's got uh, Richard Steele for his heart attack uh, and his open heart surgery. You know, there's still always uh, things that can crop up at the last minute. We don't want to, that to happen. So we can pray for him, uh, the Balkans, and um, uh, I think that's everybody. So, okay. Well, anyway, Mark chapter two, starting in verse fifteen. I'll read through the passages, I'll pray, and then we'll go ahead and jump into the lesson. Um, chapter chapter 2, verse 15, And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. That would be publicans and, and the sinners, that would be us, actually. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? 
such a blessing to know that God loves us enough that he would sit down with us and have a meal with us um, without hesitation. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast, and they came and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth to an old garment, else the new piece that filled up, filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields of the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was in hunger? He and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you and praise you for you, for the blessings that you give and the fact that you will sit down with us at, at any time and you would you would uh, have a meal with us, you would share life with us. And Lord, what a blessing that is. And I know that you do that for anybody. There's no criteria that, that, that makes us worthy of sitting with you. It's just because of your great love for, for all of us. And we never want to lose sight of that. I want to pray for Annabeth. Uh, Bonison, Lord, just lift her up to you as she gets prepared to have her test done on June 3rd and um, and then results on June 10th. We want to also pray for Jeremy's grandmother, uh, <clears throat> who's in a nursing home in Iowa, 90 years old, 93, and she was tested positive with the, the COVID uh, virus. Lord, this is a serious situation. We pray your hand to be upon her life and that you would use this time as a testimony for all the people at the nursing home, the staff, other other residents, and Lord, that you would show yourself mighty in her life. And whatever happens, Lord, we know that uh, Jeremy and the family can lean on you strongly because you hold them all up. You 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 pick them up. You lift them up. And Lord, we pray for the Steels. We pray for the Arnies. We pray for the the Balkans, um, and we pray for uh, Bud Crust. And, uh, Lord, there's, I know there's so many others in our church, in our classroom. Lord, it would be good to be back in fellowship with everybody together soon. We look forward to that day. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, Philippians chapter 2 is where we're at today. Um, we haven't finished chapter 2 yet. We've been in a couple weeks already. And uh, we're going to be in a couple more weeks today and uh, next week as well, probably. Um, okay, so let me just, as a way of introduction, our study of chapter 2 has clearly shown us, when you look at chapter 2, it's clearly shown us that it is about replacing our mind with the mind of Christ in order to further the gospel. This was the theme of the study, is furthering the gospel. And uh, we talked about this before, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, 
is a, is a tool. I know it's a theme. It's the theme of this chapter. But if we look at this as tools, what are we gonna, we're going to use the tools that God has given to us to accomplish his work. And so there's this tool. The tool is your mind. It's actually the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you. What mind? The mind of Christ, which also was in Christ Jesus. So, so we're going to break that down and, and extensively today. But just think about it for a minute. Taking, taking everything that Christ was in his mind, we, have a, we duplicate that in our mind so that we think like he thinks, who thinks like God. That's, a, that's an awesome thing. And so from the example that Paul gives us in the actions of Jesus Christ, we looked back, we've already seen in the earlier verses, we saw how we can humble ourselves to develop and to maintain a unity of the body, because that's really what Paul is, is focusing on here at this point in time, is, the, is having, um, having unity in the body of, of the church so that we, so the church can accomplish the mission, which is the furtherance of the gospel, which is, uh, this, as I said, this, this, the theme of this study. And so um, Jesus became the greatest model for our humility because this is God stepping down into the earth and taking on the body of a, of a man, um, flesh. Uh, so that's, that's humility in, in action. And so we see Jesus as the greatest model for our humility. And, it, and we saw what was in his mind. We saw what was in his mind as he was thinking about what he was doing. And he makes, and when we see that, we make our own, we make those things, those thoughts, our own thoughts that leads us to the unity of the body as well. So how how do we think about humility and, and unity? As well as how do we process circumstances that are part of our mind, which should emulate the mind of Christ? That's what we're talking about. That's what we're going to get into today. And that's what it means to let the mind of Christ be in you. And chapter 2 is about what having Christ's mind should look like. So we've got his picture, and now we have his example, and now we have his completion. So verses 1 to 4, if we were to back up for a minute, we would see that those those four verses Paul writes in verses 1 to 4, he focused on the humility, on going from humbleness to unity, or uh, humility to, to unity. And in verses 5 to 11, last week, it focused on the incarnation of Christ. And it was more of a theological study. Uh, but it's the incarnation of Christ as our example of humility. God taking on the form of a man, stepping out of the throne, stepping out of heaven, and coming down into a sin-wracked world to do what he needed to do. Now when we look at verses 12 to 18, which is our text for today, we're going to focus on being sanctified. Because this is really what what, what what Paul is trying to bring us to is to understand that we need to be sanctified in the things that we're doing. If every church member was sanctified according to the mind of Christ, just think how much work we could get done, how much ministry we could get accomplished, and how much unity there would be in the church. Okay, so let's talk let's talk about sanctification for just a minute. The purity of sanctification. Replacing our mind with the mind of Christ is in itself a process of sanctification. So the words to sanctify, it's used throughout the Bible, all over the place. I didn't, I didn't go get a count of sanctify, sanctified, sanctification, all of those kind of... Uh, um, uh, what am I looking for? Usages of the word. 
I'm not, I didn't do that, but the very first time is always a good place to go. First time a word shows up, and that is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And uh, you probably already know what, what this is about. Genesis 2 is the completion of the creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So in the Old Testament, the word sanctify, uh, I think you have some blanks here, quite a few of them, if I remember right. You see, yeah, there's quite a few of them. Actually, I, I thinned that down a little bit. I had a whole bunch more. But in any case, okay, so in the Old Testament, the word sanctified means to set apart, means to be holy. It includes showing ourselves as holy. You know, uh, we, need to, we need to present ourselves as holy. So that means that we're set apart from the world. And, and we also... Okay, so it includes showing ourselves as holy and also dedicated to behave and act holy. So that's why we have the example of Jesus Christ. He is the most holy. And so we look at him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. And there's other places where we get that same um, instruction to follow, follow after Christ. So if Christ is holy, we should be holy. In fact, uh, I can't remember the passage right now, but it says, but God says, be holy for I am holy. So we're supposed to be holy like God who has th- that concept is in the mind of Christ and it should be in us as well. So in the New Testament, though, the word is not defined exactly the same. Uh, in the New Testament, the word speaks of making something pure or rendering something clean. And remember what happened in, look over at Matthew chapter 23, verse 19. Matthew 23, verse 19, Jesus Christ was challenged by the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, and verse 19. Get to the right page, sorry. 23, 19, still not there yet. Here we go. Okay. 23 verse 19 says, Ye fools and blind, for whether it is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. You say, what, what is more important, the altar or what you put on the altar? The sacrifice or the place of sacrifice? What is more, what is more, um, what is greater there, he says? And so what what he wants us to understand is that that he's telling the Pharisees that that which purified the altar or the sacrifice on the altar, it's, it's, it's what was put on the altar. But the altar is what sanctified what was what was put there. And so what Paul's example of Christ setting himself apart from the Godhead, that's an act of sanctification as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so Jesus, who understood his actions, were an example of justification, I'm sorry, an example of sanctification, said in John chapter 17, verse 19, For their sakes I sanctify myself, 
that they also might be sanctified through the truth. God, Jesus Christ, he was sanctified, but he also wanted us to be sanctified as well. So there's also the understanding that to consecrate is to set apart. So there's a similar word, consecrate. I lost my my. Okay, I don't know why it does that. Anyway, I was just going out. Okay, so... Jesus understood, let me go back again. Jesus understood his, his actions were an example of sanctification. John 5, 17, 19. He said, I sanctify myself, setting himself apart from heaven. He set himself apart. He stepped out of heaven. That's the sanctification process. Um, which he also consecrated himself to be set apart for common use. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, Paul writes, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. Okay, so as kind of a definition or an explanation of the purity of sanctification and how that fits with what we're dealing with in this passage here. So, if we read verse 12, let's go back to Philippians, because we hadn't actually read the passage yet. Go back to Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read, starting verse 5, I'm sorry, verse, verse 12, I'm going to read all the way down through verse 11, um, verse can't even remember what I'm looking at. Verse 5, 12 to 18. 12 to 18. Thank you. Keep me straight. Okay, so let's start here. In verse 12, Paul writes, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that ye may... Be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Okay, so in verse 12, as we start off the, the passage in verse 12, the question ought to be, what is my role in my sanctification? Uh, so my contribution, what is my contribution? Is my sanctification based on all that I can do and should do? So set it apart. Is it, is it what I do to set it apart? Is it what I do to be pure, to be clean, to be holy? Is it what I do? And Paul starts off by laying our sanctification at our feet and telling us to work out our own salvation. Think about that verse. I mean, this is one of those probably the most confusing verses that's in the New Testament surrounding the word salvation when he says, work out your salvation. Because a lot of people use that verse for, for a, mis, a, mis, a misapplication of doctrine. And so there is a requirement, though, for us of obedience and the absence of God's presence to address our spiritual change. But Paul is, there's things that we have to do. We have to do something. What is what, what, is what we have to do? Uh, so there is a recognition of the danger also of losing our sanctification and losing our own soul by the words fear and trembling at the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, people will take all of this and they'll misapply it when it comes to salvation. The, act, the being saved, uh, they apply, apply it wrong. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Mark writes, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
these kind of verses are kind of scary. They cause us to fear and tremble. Does that mean I could lose my salvation? Does that mean I didn't have my salvation? Have I not done enough to earn my salvation? Have I not set myself apart yet in order to be sanctified, in order to be saved? These are very challenging questions. So starting with verse 12, Paul reaches back. Notice he says in verse 12, at the beginning, the very first word is wherefore. The same thing as you see in the times when the word therefore is there. So wherefore and therefore kind of are the same type of thing. And wherefore, he's reaching back to verse four, verses 1 to 4 as the goal of the saints in unity. He's also reaching back to verses 5 to 11 as the example of Jesus Christ and his incarnation that we can be sanctified as well and should. And we should be sanctified. So looking at, at both passages, verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 11, we see a question of what man must do and what God has done. And our study should lead us directly to the answer. The unspoken question that we need to ask, uh, if, we, if Paul was sitting right here, and you can say, Paul, explain verses 12 and 13 to me. Tell me what you're trying to say. Um, if, we, if we could ask that question, what must man do and what has God done, uh, we will get to the answers of what Paul is talking about. So the unspoken question that we need to ask Paul, if he was sitting here, what he's talking about in verses 12 and 13 is this. It's a simple question. Who's responsible for your salvation, uh, for your sanctification? Is it what the saints do, or is it what God does, or is it a combination of both? And so that's Paul. Paul puts verse twelve and thirteen kind of at at opposite ends of each of the of the spectrum, and almost challenges because he says in verse twelve, "Work out your own salvation," but in verse thirteen says, "It is God which worketh." So is it your work or is it God's work? That makes that brings you to sanctification. That's what that's what Paul's getting to in the rest of this section, and that's the question that we're trying to answer. And it really is a uh, it's almost a diametrically opposed concept around the uh, the idea of working. God works, but you're supposed to work too. Paul says you're supposed to work, work out your your salvation. But oh, don't, you can't work out your salvation because it's God that worketh. Verse thirteen. And so that's the, that's the, di- the diametrically opposed concept here that Paul is dealing with, and we have to explore. So, um, in verse 12, we'll go back to verse 12 again, work out your own salvation. So it's common, as I said, for readers of this passage to decide that means that your salvation from death and separation from God is based on what you do. Your salvation is based on works. And some may think that it means to work for your salvation or to work at your salvation. But here's the thing. We all know that salvation is not of works. We understand that from from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not that not of yourselves. It is not the gift it is the gift of God, not of works. Certain certainly not not works that you can do, lest any man should boast. Romans chapter three, verse twenty. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight by the law is knowledge of sin. So what are we to do? So what are we to do is work, but work a completely different idea, which kind of gets overlooked. We're working out the basis of our salvation. That's what we're working out here. Because what the goal is to take on the mind of Christ so that we can further the gospel. And so what do we do? So our basis, what is the basis of your salvation? The basis is 
that we know that we are saved. So work from that. Work from the fact that you know you're saved. Let me say it in a different way. Live that out since you are saved. You must behave as a believer. The bottom line is, if you're saved, then live like a saved person. If you're a believer, then live like a believer. Exercise, work out what you say, you, what you claim that you believe. So, so the phrase, work out your salvation, is a verb. If you go back and look at it in Strong's Concordance, you get the idea that it's a verb. That means to have have this continual emphasis on constantly making the effort to bring something to fulfillment. What? So your salvation, and you're trying to minister to other people, work out your salvation so that they can be saved. So have continual emphasis on constantly making the effort to bring something to fulfillment or completion. Work out your salvation so other people get saved too. See, you get you have a gift. You have this wonderful gift called the gift of God, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. says you're saved. The only way you can get that gift is to receive Christ as Savior when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your, for your sins. And you accept that, Romans chapter 10, and all the way through you know, chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and all the way down to verse 13, tells us that when you... Receive Christ as your Savior. Would you say, I accept what your, your, your substitution for my sin. I, I, I believe that, you're, that you died on the cross and you rose again on the third day. And you're saying all of those kind of things. That's verse 12. But, but what verse 13 is what God did. He, he sacrificed himself for you, for your sin, for your life. And when you accept that, and, he, and you're accepting what he did, then you're saved. Well, what do you do? You don't just stop. But too many Christians just stop. They don't. They don't exercise their salvation. They don't. They don't. They don't. So what do I want to say? They don't proclaim. They don't work out their your salvation. And so, um, the reaching into you have to reach into your salvation. Now, that's an idea that's kind of an interesting thing. I'm sorry. I, my computer is just really weird today. Just want to make sure it's still working some way. Okay, all right. So, so you're saved. You're work out your salvation. How do you work out your salvation? You reach into your salvation. You reach into it. Consider your salvation to be a depository of all that God has given you. God deposited His Spirit in you. He made a deposit there, and you are to take out of that deposit. Call it a nugget, call it a, a sample, call it whatever you want to call it. But you're reaching into your salvation and you're and you're taking out of what God deposited in you to produce a character of daily holy living out of the holiness of God that has put that He's deposited He's deposited Himself, right? The Holy Spirit of God. He deposited that in your in you. He's given you His holiness, and now He says, Take from my holiness and use it to accomplish my mission. There's also the expectation of a commitment and a personal effort that you need to be involved in. Paul spoke of this struggle that we all face in either yielding our flesh to uncleanness or yielding our flesh to, to righteousness. In Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Look at that passage there. Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Paul says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto 
holiness, which is sanctification. Holiness is sanctification. So you reach in, you 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 yield your members as a servant of the righteousness that was God gave you, and you take that and you use it so that you can work out your salvation so other people can get saved. Let me go back to Philippians. And so, so we have a responsibility to present our abilities to righteousness. The abilities that you have need to be presented to righteousness, Romans 6, 19. And in the process of advancing towards sanctification, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul again writes here, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. To be cleansed means to be sanctified. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So Ephesians chapter 4 also tells us to walk worthy of our calling. Colossians chapter 3 reminds us that we have a new life. And so these and other passages, they all imply it is our responsibility to live a yielded, sanctified life, working out our salvation through holy living. And Paul also goes on, he says, working in fear and trembling. Now what does that mean, fear and trembling? What are you scared of? What what is he referring to being afraid of? Fear is not fear of losing your salvation, but it's said it's a it's it's a it's a fear of the awe of the gift of God, and our role in manifesting that gift with a desire to please God. Remember what it said back in Exodus chapter twenty, verse twenty, when Moses said to the people, "Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that he his fear may be before your faces that you sin not." See, work out your work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So when you're working out your salvation, when you're reaching in and taking part of that depository and using it to righteousness and to sanctification, and then you're fearful that you don't mess up. You're fearful that that you don't sin yourself, that you do everything that God wants you to do, that you are living away the way that God wants. Well, how can you know that? By having the mind of Christ. Okay, so um, these and other passages tell us that, they imply that, uh, so fear is not a fear of losing your salvation, but it's a fear of, it's the awe, because that's what fear sometimes is well too, fear of the Lord is an awe of who God is uh, and our role in manifesting that gift. And so the fear of God should keep us from sinning and failing to live out our salvation. Basically, you should be, you should get fearful when you're not accessing the deposit that God has given you. You ought to be fearful of that because you have to face the living God one day, and he's going to say, why did you use the stuff I gave you? You didn't need anything else. Just use what I gave you. And we'll say, well, I didn't think it was worth it. Or something, some silly answer we'll give him. Trembling is literally shaking at the thought of wronging God in sin. And neither fear and trembling is bad because it keeps us tracking right and getting the gospel out. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. How do you do that? You serve him with fear and you rejoice with trembling. So believers should have a serious dread of sin and a yearning for doing what is right before God. So Paul's point in all of this, in verses 12 and 13, is that the true spiritual growth is not one-sided. It's not just what you do and it's not just what God does, it's what you both do. So no amount of man-made effort can produce righteousness, nor does the Lord sanctify his people by osmosis. Only when the two work in concert is sanctification possible? Okay, so that's my role. That's that. That would be the, under the title of my role, verse twelve. But then in verse thirteen, it's God's role in in my sanctification. What does God contribute? Because it seems like verse thirteen, as I said, 
eliminates our, our involvement in our sanctification, puts it all on God. So is our sanctification only on God, or is there an effort from my own contribution? And we've kind of already touched on it a little bit already. But to see this theologically, consider what we learned about verse 12, directive to work out your salvation. Ask yourself this question. This is, this is probably a good example. Are you able to contribute to your own salvation? Can you just let God save you with, if he wants? Like, like you just like, save me if you want, God, I don't care. And you just walk away from God? Is that going to happen? Is God going to save you? No. I mean, he could, but that's not how it works. Because you have to repent, you have to believe, and you have to commit to Christ. So those things are, they're not doing things, but they're acknowledging things. You're making, a, you're making an investment in your own uh, work there as well. And so God works salvation in us so that we can work out our salvation. And this is the personal relationship that we have with God. You ever think about the personal relationship you and I have with God? Think about it in this way. God, he is an abiding relationship with us, <clears throat> and we experience the fullness of it every day. If God is not working in us, we would never be able to work out all his work out to his glory and praise. We wouldn't be able to do that. We would we would end up not doing anything. In fact, verse 12 would be useless if there was not a verse 13. So the working out of verse 12 would be impossible if God had not worked in us. So your work is not the same as God's work, though. What he does is different than what you do. Now, notice in verse 12 and 13, there's a word work. Work out your salvation, for God which worketh in you both. So there's a word work in both of them, but those are two different English, two different translations of the same word work. Um, in, in verse 12, the word means to make a constant effort. So the effort is your work, the labor, the, the tasking, the, the, the energy that's put out. But in verse 12, in verse 13, it's a different word. It means to produce an effect. Miracles, for example, or works. The word, the word that we translate in verse 13 into the word work is the same word that we get the word energy. In, that, in Greek, is energero. And it teaches us two things about God's work. First, it teaches us that God's works in our will, moving our desires to be aligned with His. So God, let me say that again. God works in our will. Notice what he says. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. So God works in your will, moving your desires to be aligned with his. That's what verse 13 is telling us. God moves in your life. He works. He's energizing you. So your will is aligned with his will. And the second thing that it teaches us is that God's works, that God works to make us act. And he changes our motives to do righteous things. Why do, you do, why do you serve God at all? Is it because you want the glory of it? You want the prestige of it? You want the accolades of it? You want the acknowledgement of your fellow man? Of all, oh, look, he's a, he's a pious preacher person. No, that's not what we're doing this for. We're not doing it for what we can get from that. We're doing it because our motives have been changed in our heart because we want to please God. So those two things work, energize us in verse 13. When he says, for it is God who, which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's, it's not his good pleasure that he does things to you. It's that you do his good pleasure. Okay, so in fact, there's five truths 
that we get out of verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 13. There's five truths. I'm going to kind of go through them kind of quickly. But the first one is that God is the one at work. God is the one at work. The emphasis is on God because he's concerned with the outcome of the work. You know, um, think about it. If you're at, you're at a job and you're, your boss is giving you a task and the boss wants something done, whatever it is, whatever that task is, he wants to get something done. The boss wants it done a certain way, and he wants it done at a certain time and a certain speed and so on. He has expectations of how he wants it done. Well, if the boss could work through you to get it done the way he wanted to, don't you think he would do that? So he asks you to do the work, and then you don't do it the way he wants. What does that do? He makes him mad. But that's not what God does. What God does is he's concerned with the outcome of the work, and so he's going to work in you to modify your will and to modify your action so that his will is complete, his good pleasure. So, okay, number one, God is the one at work. Number two, God has the power. Your boss doesn't have the power to do that, but God does. So the word work in verse 13, as I said before, is the word energero or energy. So God is the energizer, and his power drives our sanctification. In the, in the flesh, we can do nothing, right? I mean, we know that in our flesh there is no good thing. In our flesh, we can't do anything. But his power, the power from God, drives us to be Christ-like as his power drives us to glorification. And his power overcomes sin, and his power invites holiness, one of the words that we use to describe God is is uh, is the character trait called omnipotent. Om, omni, all, omni means everything. Um, and then potent, the word potent means power. All power, omnipotent, God is all powerful. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. He's able to exceed everything that we could think about because of the power that he has put in us because he's deposited his Holy Spirit in us, which is a segment of his power. Okay, number three, God is always present. God does not just work on us or for us, but in us. God is always present. He doesn't work just for you. He doesn't work just... Um, uh, he doesn't work just on you or for you, but he works in you. God lives in us in his spirit. We know 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 reminds us that we're the temple of the whole of the living God. Number four is that God has his purpose. That's what it says in verse, verse 13, to do of his good pleasure. So that's his purpose. The heart of what we need to grasp and what we both will and do in his, is his will and plan. Our will and plan should be his will and plan. So God's purpose is to try to produce something in us which is a desire to both will and to do. That's what God's purpose is in us. He's doing that. He's trying to give us his will and purpose. He works in us to cause us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he wants to energize our will that we would want to do what is right. Make sure where I'm at here. Okay, so God's implication, I think I'm missing number five. Either that, number five, God has his purpose to will and to do. That's both four and five, I think is the way I was working that out. I just didn't note it that way. So God wants to move into us to make us willing to strive for righteousness. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, 
Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 says, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit of God whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So God gave them the desire to build this. He wanted to build, he wanted to rebuild the temple, uh, the house of the Lord, but he put in their heart the will to do it and the desire to do it. So God's implication of our salvation then is this the first thing that God does to move us to his purpose, is to move our will, and that is to give us a holy discontent for our own holiness. Think about that. Is it working? A discontent for your own holiness. How many of you feel like your holiness isn't on par with where it needs to be? Because that's what he's talking about. He, He moves in you to be discontented with your holiness. So that you will change your holiness by becoming and seeking and desiring to be more sanctified. Paul called himself a wretched man. And that's how much he was discontented with his own holiness. He said, oh, what a wretched man that I am. So do you feel wretched? Well, change that. Do something that needs to be done for God. And the second thing that he does, that God does, is an implication of our salvation, our sanctification, is to put into us a holy aspiration, which is longing for something better. You desire something better and true to be like Christ, to be godly, victorious, and sanctified. Okay, so um, so we have this, this idea in verses 12 and 13, and there's a lot to cover right there. We could probably end right there, but I don't want to. I want to keep going. Verses 14 to 18, the sanctified saint. What does the sanctified saint then look like? So as God works to energize us, and as he moves us to will and to do his good pleasure, sanctification then is produced in us, evident in five traits of sanctification. So we have five. So verses 14 to 18 speak of these five. So number one, verse 14, is a sanctified speech. A sanctified speech. We live in a complaining society today. Even though ours is the most indulged society, we live in a complaining society. To murmur and to dispute is Paul's way of saying that we complain too much. The same as Israel constantly was complaining about their following God in the wilderness. I mean, they were murmuring all the time. They were complaining all the time. Murmuring is to grumble, mutter, or uh, just run off of the mouth. The opposite of murmuring is to be cheerful. So murmuring is complaining, which is defined as a secret displeasure in the heart. That's interesting. It's a secret displeasure in the heart and discontent that leads to criticism. Proverbs 13.10, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. So the disputing refers to our questioning criticism. You know, sometimes we dispute with God. God, why did you do that? God, why aren't you doing this? God, why aren't you fixing things the way I want you to? That's a, dis- that's a questioning criticism or debating with God, preferring to challenge um, or argue with him. James chapter 5, verse 9. Grudge not one another. Grudge not against one another, brethren. Let ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. So determine if you are a complainer. Here's how you determine that. Look at the pronouns you use all the time. Is it a lot of they or them or him or her rather than us or me or we? Because that's how you decide if you're a grumbler and a complainer so verses 12 and 13 tell us to work out our salvation, while verse 14 identifies the attitude to work it out with. 
So there's three reasons to follow that follow in verses 15 to 18 about why we need to work at our sanctification. First is lacking sanctification denies God's sovereignty. If you're not if you're not sanctified, then you're denying the sanctification of God because you're supposed to be like him in your mind. Lacking sanctification disrupts unity. If everybody's not sanctified, then we're not on the same page because we don't all have the same mind. And lacking sanctification discredits our testimony, which is if you're not all the same, then you certainly look different to the world. So verse 15, your sanctification is proven to be blameless. When you're sanctified, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, your sanctification is proof of blamelessness. Our murmuring destroys our blamelessness. So by avoiding murmuring and disputing, we show ourselves to be blameless. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. Paul tells us in the, uh, that the world is crooked and perverse, but our sanctification is light that shines in this evil world. He says that sanctification illuminates the darkness of the world. In fact, let me read verse 15 again. That you may be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay, so we need to be a shining as lights. In verse 16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So your sanctification benefits, and this is this is probably going to, this will be hard, not hard, but maybe you're not expecting it. Your, your sanctification benefits your pastor. Your pastor. Your sanctification benefits your pastor. Pastor. Pastor, like Brian, Pastor Brian. Paul desires to rejoice in the day of Christ that his investment in teaching the saints was not vain labor. It's what he said in verse 16. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain. That's the pastor speaking. He doesn't want to run in vain. He wants your life to be sanctified and holy and righteous and following the will of God and doing everything that God wants you to do. And because he's invested in you, your life reflects on um, about his investment in you. Paul encourages the church to be sanctified always, that he will be able to rejoice at their sanctification, their speech and their unity at the day of Christ, the second coming of Christ. All of that is the benefit of your pastor. Now, you don't think too much about that, but he's invested in you. And I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about Pastor Brian. And in verses 17 and 18, he goes on, he says, And if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. So sanctified sacrifice is the third thing here. Paul has poured himself out for the saints at Philippi, doing all of this for their faith and their sanctification. He's willing to suffer as a sacrifice for the benefit of the saints, and he rejoices for their growth. He's going to do whatever it takes. He will, he will lay himself out and however he needs to so that you get everything that God wants you to have. And when we are unified, our service becomes a sacrifice of faith, and we are able to joy and rejoice with Paul that the gospel is furthered because of our sanctification. So let me finish up here and we'll be done. So let me three questions for you. What will you do to ensure your sanctification is always on display? How do you display your sanctification? What are you doing to display your sanctification in the past? And what will you do to modify that so that your sanctification is seen better in, in, the, in the world than it ever has been? Second question, how will your ministry to both the body of, of Christ and the world be able to shine for who God is. Your life, your, your, your testimony needs to shine about who God is. 
that's part of your your sanctification as well. And then lastly, will your sanctification profit the kingdom? Will it profit the kingdom? Will you further the gospel? Will people get saved because of what you do? So that's uh, that's that passage scripture, verses 12 through 18. And uh, uh, so being sanctified is such an important truth in the word of God. So let's pray. And uh, what do we got here? Happy anniversary to the steel, 17 years. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. That is uh, pretty cool. And uh, they're, good, they're a good couple. I love them both. And uh, I remember when we first met Judy. That was good. That was really good. And, uh, okay, I'm just reminiscing all of a sudden. Sorry. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll be done. And I'll close up the, the feed and pray that you have a beautiful night the rest of the night. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the passage of Scripture and for the truth that you teach us. Uh, Lord, all we have to do is just, just get your mind around these words and really understand what you're saying. It's such an awesome thing to see. We pray, Father, that our lives would be changed according to your will, that we would that we would exercise our will to match your will and the things that you want us to do, Lord, that we would do without hesitancy, without um, fear or trepidation, without any kind of uh, trembling or any of that kind of stuff. Lord, we just do it because we know that it's a pleasing thing to you. And we ask, Father, for your help in that. God, Lord, energize us with your power that we might be able to serve you to the fullest of our ability. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, God bless you all. And uh, so remember, next Sunday, on the July 7th, we will be church in the park. June 7th, we'll be church in the park. We will not have class. There will not be class on June 7th for real life. Um, but please come to the church in the park. Bring a guest, bring a friend. It's going to be an awesome time. Pray that it doesn't rain and it doesn't get over 95 degrees. Service starts at 10. You want to be there early. Uh, bring a drink. Bring your, bring something to, to munch on. I don't 100% bring a chair. Bring your lawn chairs. Bring sunscreen. Um, I don't know if we're going to do a meal or not. So, I, Well, I haven't heard that that's a definite thing. So... Plan that there won't be, but if there is, then I'll let you know sooner than later if I can. Um, so uh, bring a guest, have a good time, and uh, we'll worship. So that's the 7th, and then the 14th, we're back in this mode again one more Sunday, unless Brian changes things again. <laughs> that's okay, though. He's our pastor. He can do that. All right. Well, God bless. Love you all. We'll talk with you later.